This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. We come now to the point in which Doc finally meets his maker, in a manner of speaking, the crown prince of Palos Verdes, one Crocker Fenway, a wealthy elitist who lives a life of unusually high density and incoherence, raping and pillaging the American fate for his own nefarious ends. Crocker is as close as we get to a big bad in Inherent Vice, and he's the man who paid Doc his first buck on his first case. So what's it mean to meet your god and find out he's a devil? Wow, gosh. Well, here we are, gang. Today is the day that we, in a way, meet Doc's maker. And it's happening on an appropriately apocalyptic L.A. evening, as most of the West Coast skies have burned either a blood red or golden fang yellow this week, thanks to wildfires, poor air quality, pollution, and 2020's general and all-consuming descent into a hellmouth of our country's own making, which is also pretty appropriate when you think about it. And joining me today is someone that I have been so, so, so fucking excited to speak with since this project first began. My guest today has an absolutely incredible and insightful mind for film whose writings legit shake me to my core at times. And that sounds like hyperbole, and he's laughing at it, but I swear it is not. There are moments where he'll toss off an observation about a film on fucking Twitter or something like that, and I guarantee that he thought thought of this and wrote it in like under 30 seconds, but it will be absolutely razor-wired with insights wholly unattainable to the minds of we mere mortals. It's infuriating. Seriously, his review, I'm going to really reach back, his review of an imagined Batman film directed by Sam Peckinpah, starring Clint Eastwood with behind-the-scenes lens work from stuntman slash filmmaker Hal Needham is a genuine thing of beauty. And at this point, I'm genuinely tempted to just let him talk for this episode while I sit back and enjoy. Why not? Why not? Well, you, you have been doing this a lot, Travis, so I'll take that. You know, I, I, I am tired. Hey, you know what? You know what? You know, I've been doing this so long. You know what I'm not going to let you do? I'm not going to let you start talking until I introduce you. You know what? You introduce yourself. You say hi to everyone. Introduce yourself. Okay, so I, I that Batman piece is something I, I wrote uh, for a website called chud.com. And- Tell them your name. I'm Damon Houks. Uh, <laughs> See, if you're going to host, you got to know that you got to check these boxes quick, right at the top, man. Hyperbolic yeah. intro, say the name, talk about the movie. Okay, but anyway, you're talking about the. Uh, the, the well, amazing, like, I wrote that for Chud, and at some point on Twitter, I got contacted by the editor of uh, the New York Times Magazine, being like, <laughs> get in touch with me right now, right now. And I'm like, okay. And they were like, we want to publish that. I'm like, you want to publish a fake review I wrote of a non-existent Batman movie directed by Sam Peckinpah in the New York Times? 
And they're like, yes, and we'll pay you a dollar a word. And I'm like, okay, so my mom's going to have something to brag about for the rest of my life. Okay, good, <laughs> done, sold. Hey, it's a good piece. I love it. Very, like, I, I, I would love that movie. Oh, yeah. I, I would love it. That's a very, a very fun fascist Batman movie that I would pay high dollar for right now. I would say, uh, I, like, I'm a writer on the internet, but uh, considering the marketplace of ideas uh, <laughs> does not generally pay a living wage, I don't do very much of it anymore. Um, I'm semi-retired, I guess. I mean, I can get pulled out, you know, if someone wants me to do a set visit or whatnot. But uh, for the most part, I'm uh, mostly kind of just on the Twitter now. You're kind of like a masterless Ronin, you know? You're just yes. out there doing your thing. And occasionally, occasionally you'll fire something off that will piss me off so much because I love it so much. But I, I, I will read and go, you know, you know, he did this like on the toilet. You know, he did. You know, he barely thought about it. And it's like the smart, it's like, I, I won't, I'll, I'll never write that. I'll never be able to come up with that, that level of insight, which is why I think you're the man for today. So that's why you are on today's episode for this film, which I think is one of those movies Inherent Vice is one of those movies, let's be honest. I think this might have been mentioned a time or three on this show. It's not a movie for everybody. No. It's not a movie calibrated for everyone. But there's a certain type of person. There's a certain type of someone for whom this film is catnip. And you are one of those guys. And you are going to, you're going to point that big brain of yours at this film today. And no. I could not be more excited. I really could not. It's funny, uh, we used to write for a, a site that no longer exists, and it's one of those tragedies of, like, if any online writers are listening to this, always archive your material. Because <sighs> you're never going to know when that interview that you did, that you're like, ah, I don't need to keep the audio on this. It was fun. Yeah. It just ends up being lost to the ether. But anyway, um, I remember when we were writing for Screen Crave, um, there, there were uh, set, uh, set photos from Inherent Vice. And I think we were both just like, Martin Short in that jacket? Oh my God. <laughs> like, it was like pornography. It was, it, was, it, was, it was like pornography and Christmas all at the same time, which I know that that actually sounds pretty deviant, but that's, actually, that's what his, also, char his character would like that. I think also it's like after, you know, Albert Brooks and Drive, uh, you didn't know if Martin Short was going to be used for what. Like, yeah. And uh, seeing him in that outfit, you're just like, I don't know what I expect from this movie, but uh, I can't wait to find out what it is. <laughs> I mean, he's uh, walking around in purple velvet. Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm sold. I mean, not, yeah. not like I wasn't already, but like that's that, that, that image alone, fine, done, sold, good. Yeah. Seeing him standing with PTA on a street corner dressed in purple velvet, like, What's better than that? What's, what, what's, what's better? What could be better than that? What your, whatever your imagination, whatever your synapses start firing around in that moment, that is the, that is the most perfect movie you're ever going to see, is whatever you imagine that's going to be. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's stay there. Let's stay rewound in 2014. Uh, you saw the movie. I'm sure, I'm sure you saw it in December right when it opened. Or, did you, or, or are you a hot shot? Did you get to see it earlier at a critic screening? Let me... I have sort of an interesting story to tell about watching this movie for the first time, but also kind of experiencing this movie. Um, at the end of June of 2014 is when Screen Crave ended up, you know, closing doors. Yep. And I, I ended up losing an, another gig for a site I was writing for. Um, so, like, I had no um, income uh, at that moment. Uh, going forward, I was going to have to start looking for work and um, everything was changing and it was one of those moments where I was totally okay with everything 
because uh, like a week before all the shit went down, um, I, I met and we started dating. Uh, and so it was one of those things where she was moving to Europe very shortly. So we had one of those relationships that lasted like two weeks. But uh, the further it went along, the, the more and more intense it got. <clears throat> because, you know, you have that and very kind of inherent vicey thing of like, you know, you know it's going to end. Yeah. Like there, there is, there is, there's a line in the sand, you know, there's a ticket bot. Anyway, I'm starting to, you know, try and figure out what the next chapter of my life is. And I emailed her and was just like, hey, um, you know, I hope you're doing well. I miss you. Hope things are going good. And she got back to me and was like, hey, I'm going to this party in Somerset uh, this weekend. Do you want to go? And I was like, uh, you know, I, I don't think I can afford that. I'm a writer. It's not really in my, and she's like, I got a bunch of frequent flyer miles. So I, uh, you know, like on Monday, I said to my, my roommate, I was like, hey, ha uh, ha, uh, she was joking about maybe even flying me to London to go to a party. And then Tuesday, I was like, um, can you get me to the airport on Thursday? <laughs> so um, I, I went to Somerset and uh, in, in London and we spent a couple days together and uh, I, I can only refer to it as magical because if you're at a party in Somerset, you know, after 48 hours of leaving LA, not thinking that this was possible a week before it, and then dancing in the middle of the party and it's crazy. Um, yeah, it was absolutely one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And, uh, when I came home, um, my roommate picked me up at the Burbank airport. And it was one of those moments where, um, you know, we're both in the car and it's like, I can't really say anything because it's like, you can't really like gush to a dude about like something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we're just kind of sitting there in the car in, in quiet for a moment. And then my roommate was just like, hey, so uh, while you were gone, guess what I did? And I was like, what? He's like, uh, I, I went to the Warner Brothers lot and they showed me Inherent Vice. And so he's bragging to me about that. And so whenever I think about this movie, I think about that moment of him telling me how awesome it was to see that movie as I'm waiting to kind of be like, yes, okay, yes. Oh, that, is, that is pure vice with just a little bit of Linklater sprinkled on top. So um, the first time I saw the film was when my then roommate uh, got a Academy screener. Mm -hmm. And he had already seen it. And it was very much the Rick and Cliff on the couch kind of thing. Now, because we're both, we were both film critics, like we're not really talking, but he's got that energy of someone who's already seen the movie yeah. and wants to see how I'm going to react. And I don't think I said much other than there's that moment where, you know, Shasta is walking over to the couch and doing her whole speech. And she's mm -hmm. naked as the day she was born. And I like, the only thing I think I said during the whole movie was, holy shit, it's a wonder. Because it's just that recognition of like, oh my God. And it's like, One when you think about, think. when you think about all of Anderson's set pieces, um, you know, Boogie Nights, you know, they're entering the club, whatever. Yeah. Honestly, that wonder is 
as daring and as audacious as anything he's done in his entire career. You are a thousand percent right. Like that is, it, I don't think every, it's one of those though. And this is, this is another reason why I am, I am so happy that you are on is because you're the kind of person that's going to catch that. I think there are a lot of people, understandably, they're going to be so overwhelmed or enthralled by that moment or just like the sheer what the fuckery of, of it because it is such a tonal, it's not as much of a tonal shift as, as it, it seems like on first viewing. It is, it's almost, this is very much an emotional climax that the film has been building towards. But I think you are so right that it is, for a film that even I have times have described as, well, it's not the most visually interesting film in the the Ellswit PTA oeuvre and yet there are these little it's studded throughout with these these bits of magic that if you do hang back and pay attention as you said this is probably the most audacious oneer in PTR's PTR PTA's canon and I, I even remember I, I the speaking of which I remember you throwing it out there in the past where you have said the three greatest oneers in cinema number one touch of evil number two breaking news Number three, inherent vice, and it's this one. And you're you're exactly right. Like the the audaciousness of that, like yeah. the, it's it's incredible. But it's it's also the the confidence to be able to do that. Well, I, I'd also like to say anyone here who hasn't seen Johnny Toast Breaking News, get on that. <laughs> um, because yeah, it opens with an eight minute gunfight yeah. that is one shot, and it's like that is like the perfect extension of what Hong Kong cinema was going through in the 90s. <laughs> but neither here nor there. Yeah, no, I think, but also uh, you, I'm sure, watch all the supplements on Phantom Thread, right? Oh, God, yeah. One of the things that I think has changed so much in Anderson's filmography, and we'll get into this when we talk about Cokehead, Coke Kid versus Weed Dad, not Cokehead versus Weed Dad, though. Yeah. Um, Six uh, of one, half a dozen of the other. Um, is that like when you watch that and he's showing you, here's the lens, here's the lighting. Here's the lens. Yeah. Like you can see these subtle variations on what he's looking at and he's kind of walking you through it. And it's like a film school in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, he says in that one of the most insightful things ever, which is that at one point he had, you know, Reynolds in a tie. And he's like, we had to see him in a tie to know that he couldn't wear a tie that had to be a bow tie. And when you think about the character and you think about the difference between a tie and a bow tie, it really is that that is the character. It's yeah. like he has to wear a bow tie. And to know that is... You have to see him in the tie. You have to see him in yeah. the regular tie. But yeah, but also, yeah. <laughs> anyway. um, our, uh, at this point, let's get into well, Coke Kid versus Weed. Well, really quick, I, I do, I do want to know. I, I want to know okay. what happens when any day now starts chiming over Doc's smirk as he's looking into the light of his rear view and we're fading to those, those neon font credits. You're leaning back in your seat. Your buddy's looking at you with that look of like, well, well, well. And I want to know. Damon, I want to know. Tell me. What, like, what, when, you, when you lean back, you know, I think that especially people of our nerdy ilk i don't know about you but you immediately immediately even if you're in the afterglow even if you're letting yourself enjoy the afterglow there's that little that little guy in the back of your head that's already like contextualizing and framing the film and like thinking about the other films this filmmaker has made and i you know especially a filmmaker of this strength i don't know about you but i can't help but immediately go well how does this fall into the body of work how does this can not so much is it his best is it his worst is it his, but how how does this continue 
the the visual and storytelling language that this person has been developing in my time with him or her. And I'm curious, like when you're leaning back after you've seen this for, for the first time, what are your immediate thoughts? Well, my my immediate thoughts are, I need to watch this again because, <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into that in, in a little bit. Uh, but with movies like this, we can kind of, I'll, I'll talk about it now. What happens in the long goodbye actually, and what we see on screen are such different things. Two very different things. Because what happens in the long goodbye, not to whatever, is Terry Lennox kills his wife, goes across the border with a bunch of mob money, and uh, gets himself fake killed. Then sends the money back to the mob people. What happens during all of that is Marlowe investigates what's going on, not knowing any of that information. But all that happens in that movie are those four things until Marlowe shows up. But we can't know that until the very, very end. <laughs> and the thing about inherent vice, and I think a lot of movies like this, at a certain point, and you know, it gets into the big sleep of it all. You you kind of have to surrender to the narrative mm -hmm. because you can't like wait. How does Glenn Charlock enter into this, and then his sister, and then Tariq, and you're trying to hold on to all these things and like what's going on with the development, and some of them don't matter to to what's happening but you can't know that until you've watched it again so i think my first thought was i think i've seen a masterpiece i want to watch it again sure. and for me you know with 2014 it was always like well what's the better movie is it grand budapest is it boyhood is it this is it we are the sport you know like there were a number of really really strong 2014 films and uh i often vacillate to me it's sort of like 2007 that way where it's like assassination of uh, Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, there will be blood and no country for old men. You know, pick one. It's your what, mood. What's the, what, yeah, what, what's the last one you watched? Yeah, the last one, yeah. Um, well, so I, 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 was, I was in love with it. And also it's, it's easily his funniest movie. By a mile. And, you know, like one of the things, like, there's a sight gag in, in the scene we're doing that's just so amazing. It's like he's sitting there with the pricks and you're just like, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> there's so many. The nervous, so many like lo the Looney Tunes, like almost Wiley e. Coyote sweating. And just as he's just sitting there looking around, surround, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's, it, it's, and it's so low key. Now, there's no, it's not underlined, no exclamation point. It's just funny. You know, like they were sitting there, you know, he was sitting there looking at that in the viewfinder just going, this is funny we should just leave this why not it's fun and it's also that kind of like weird kind of a little bit hazy i don't you know like one of the best gags is when he looks behind and then then he turns around and all the guys stand up <laughs> <laughs> he's going to go to go to the pussy uh was it the, uh it's the what, he's what, going to he's going to get the pussy eaters special going to get the come on guy. come on damon come yeah. on if you're gonna host this thing come on man oh well, well so. now so I think this brings us to a very important point, a very, a very serious, very serious thing that we really do need to discuss. And I think you have some thoughts on it. And that would be, since we're talking about uh, the thoughts of the man behind this film, I think it's time we, we dedicate a moment to that special, special section of the show entitled Coke Kid versus 
weed dad, TM Jason Bailey? Because I think you have some thoughts about this. I do. I don't. I'm not a big fan of Coke Kids. You're not and a fan think, of nomenclature or you're not a fan of Coke Kids movies? Coke Kids movies. Oh. Not a big fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say this. It's because of the name. It's that energy. <laughs> where, does Coke Kid, where does Coke Kid end for you? Magnolia or Punch Drunk? Punch Drunk. What, here's the thing. I would split it. I was thinking about this into Old Testament versus New Testament. Because what I get out of Boogie Nights and Magnolia is that um, the director is kind of an active participant, that he is one of the main characters in the film. Mm, yeah. I haven't watched Hard Eight in a while, um, mostly because I think I watched it on Laserdisc and I've been kind of waiting for the Criterion edition, which has been rumored forever. Um, but we still don't have a Blu-ray. I believe the DVD is the director's cut, but I, you know, I, I wasn't a fan of his until There Will Be Blood. And it's partly because I feel like you know, with with Old Testament Anderson, you know, he he is an active participant and he wants to be God. And did you ever did you ever have the Criterion Laserdisc of Boogie Nights? I did not. Did you ever uh, see the Criterion Laserdisc for Boogie Nights? I did not. I'm I'm sad for you. Does the Blu-ray come with the the commentary where they're obviously all really drunk and stoned and Mark Wahlberg talks about breaking his dick? Breaking his dick, yes. I've heard yeah, I've heard that. Okay. Well, on, um, on the Criterion release, they included a uh, portion of the John Holmes documentary from the 70s, Exhausted. Yeah, and PTA does the commentary for that as well. PTA does the commentary, and I believe in the commentary for that, I don't believe he says it in the movie proper. He was thinking about John Holmes, and he was like, you know, it must have been really hard for John Holmes, because, like, you know, if he got a boner, he'd, like, ruin his underwear, because he'd break the elastic. And that was his take on John Holmes. But if you've ever seen the documentary Wad, which was included originally with the, the Hollywood Land, the Val Kilmer, John Holmes documentary, or uh-huh. biopic, uh, on Wad, one of the porn stars said, here's the thing about John, his dick never worked. Um, if he ever were to get uh, an erection, he would pass out, and having sex with him was like fucking a loofah. Boy, we're taking turns so, the, the thing about Boogie Nights is he didn't really do the research, but then also, or he did the research and realized John Holmes is not a person you can particularly feel sympathy for. I mean, here's a guy who um, may have gotten people killed. Let's not get into that too much with the, you know, the, the, yeah, the Wonderland murders, uh, but also, you know, at the end of his life, having AIDS, participated in, in pornography, knowing he might kill his co-stars. Um, so Boogie Nights to me, it's like what I think, you know, he loved Goodfellas obviously and Scorsese, but like Raging Bull and, and Goodfellas were based on real life. And so you have that great shot in Goodfellas. It's a shot I always think of with the film where, where the uh, mobster gets out of his car and you can just see the, the car rise a little rise, bit. Rise, yeah. And you can tell that like Scorsese is like documenting, like we're trying to recreate a reality. And, and I don't think he's really interested in that. Uh, at least at that point in his career, where I think later on, he got way more into research. And with Magnolia, like the Old Testament, like is so readily apparent. He's got fucking frogs coming from the sky. <laughs> the Old Testament is um, text, it's text in that film. Yeah. 
Um, but I think also the big difference between Old Testament and New Testament is that in Old Testament, in, you know, obviously Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Punch Drunk Love, you feel characters all want love. They want to fill a hole in their heart. And because I feel like the camera is one of the main characters, I also feel it kind of for the films themselves. They really are desperate to be loved. Yeah. And, you know, Magnolia is... And I, I think even Anderson would admit it to a certain extent, like, you know, a splintering of who he thinks he is, you know, the, you know, the terrible, terrible womanizer who's got father issues and, and, you know, the quiz kid Donnie Smith said it all. I think it's all very personal to him, but I also feel like he was so in control. He was so coke kid that he's like, I can do the, the sort of thing Altman does in, but I can do it, you know, like I can find those happy accidents by writing. Them. And it's like, I don't, I understand why people love those films, but I, I, I find them a little exhausting. There is a there's there's a level of control that can be a it can be exhausting because they're as you said they're the idea of like I can write the happy accident as opposed to allow the happy accident and and I think even his producers have said you know on those on those early films like he literally he went full Scorsese and he had. Uh, 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 shot. He designs the shots for everything. On everything is on the page. Everything is on the page. Nothing is. You don't show up and figure it out on the day. Nothing is figured out on the day. It's all so mapped out, and that does, for as expansive uh, in scope as a film like Magnolia can be, it can be a little. It gets it to be a little claustrophobic at times because everything is so rigidly pointed towards one direction, so that doesn't allow for as much discovery. As much as I, 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 I like the films, I think more than you do, but uh, there is that that lack of just that, that feeling of airy ambiguity and mystery. Like there, there is no real mystery to those films. Even something as kind of oddly structured as as Punch Drunk, there is no mystery to it. Well, and also I think uh, you know Pauline Kael said in a review of Raging Bull, it's like you know once people start shouting, the only thing you can do after that is start hitting. And I think a lot of his stuff is built towards going to 10 a lot earlier than, and I think he got better about that, where it's like, you know, like when Julianne Moore is screaming at the, you know, pharmacy guy, that's like first hour. (laughs) (laughs) We still have a ways to go. But also, I mean, again, I think all of those movies are deeply personal, but I think they're also, especially with the first four, about someone who is desperate to be loved. Sure. And those movies are about desperate love. And I think, Punch Drunk Love is the transition, and you can see it happen in the opening credits, that you see both Old Testament and New Testament at the exact same time, because Barry goes outside, and what happens? He sees a car crash. Someone drops off the harmonium. (laughs) You're right. You're you're exactly right. That That is like the, that is the crease in the center of the book, where the pages meet, old and new. And I think, and it's interesting because uh, obviously there is that gap between Punch Drunk Love and, and There Will Be Love, or There Will Be Love. There will be love. love is actually, there will be love. I, I, would, I was going to say, though, that love is obviously what runs through all of his movies. All of his movies are, as you like to say, in your Paul Thomas Anderson impression. I love, baby. Yeah. Um, I think that Come on, well, Damon. Think, it's, it's, it's a good impression. Come on. No, it is. It is. I think also one of the big things between, between those two films was the fact that he shadowed 
Robert Altman on, yeah. on a Prairie Home Companion. And I think Altman probably kind of schooled him on a lot of things by also being like, I'm dying. Like that movie is, that movie is a funeral. Yeah. It's one of the most beautiful funerals in cinema, but it is Robert Altman saying, this is it. This is, this is it. This is the end. And I think, you know, to be there for that and a lot of things I think really reshaped him. I think also one of the big things is in those early movies, there's obviously a feeling that the main characters, parents didn't love them enough. There's a lot of parental need. Obviously, Boogie Nights puts it front and center, but it's also in Magnolia. It's kind of like Barry's relationship with his sister kind of speaks in an unhealthy familial relationship. Uh, what I think really changes with There Will Be Blood is him going at the story from the perspective, not only as a father, which I assume he became after Punch Drunk Love, I would have to look at his biography to see when they had kids, but also looking at it from the perspective of a father who is incapable of showing the love you want. Yeah, it's the first and time he switches to that perspective. And I think I think that really changed a lot of things. And though I think you have needy characters, I don't think the need is up front, even if like in The Master, obviously Freddie's fucked up, but he's not really looking to meet Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. That's an accident. The love story kind of blooms from that, you know, and all of this other later stuff, it's not hungry love in the same way. But all his films, I mean, Phantom Thread is all about love. Inherent Vice is all about love. The Master is all about love. I mean, they're all love is all about someone who can't love. And, and I think also, I think what he learned was he was really good at being showy, but especially when we talk about that, you know, that Phantom Thread bonus feature, like, I think he really just got into the technical side of things. And I think much like Quentin Tarantino with, with Kill Bill, he, he, he was like, I need to figure out how to do this in a different way. I need to work different muscles or I'm not going to get anything out of this anymore. Because I think, and, it, and I, like, I kind of want to talk about this with you. Like, I think there are four main auteurs that emerged from the 90s. I'm going to leave out Todd Haynes because he doesn't really fit. And the other one who doesn't totally fit is David Fincher, though I think he is definitely one of the great American filmmakers to emerge from the 90s. But it's the two Andersons and Tarantino. And I think what we see in, in Anderson, West and Quentin Tarantino is, and Paul, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, is they all hit a point in their career where they have to rethink they how they tell stories and how they want to move forward. And I think for Tarantino, the halfway point is really death proof, where he stopped being sort of a uh, filmmaker as critic, where he was making these movies that were obviously direct commentaries on genre and stuff like that. I think Death Proof is saying a lot more about horror movies than I think Inglorious Bastards or uh, Django Unchained are saying about war films or um, westerns. Uh, and I think with, you know, yeah, yeah, Anderson, what? I was just gonna say, yes, a thousand percent. I mean, I mean, Death Proof is literally, it's like a, it is like a visual adaptation of Carol Clover's book. Like it, it is men, women, and chainsaws just at a hundred miles per hour. It is a pure, purely like, almost purely critical text. But also, you know, Kill Bill, what makes it so powerful is 
by him dressing the bride as Bruce Lee, fighting against Lady Snowblood, you know, in this Japanese set backing with like flamenco music playing, you, you know, you get the sense that, oh yeah, Akira Kurosawa was stealing from John Ford. And, you know, Sergio Leone was stealing from, you know, John Ford and Howard Hawks. And the language of cinema and the language of violence and all this stuff goes through so many different filters that when you talk about appropriation, there is a purpose to that. And there is a reason to say things have been appropriated, but also everyone's borrowing from everyone. And so it becomes this great synthesis of all these different, like, ideas of what revenge film should be to become this, like it's obviously a film comment, um, uh, or film commentary on these other things. Um, and that's why I love those films. But I think when you get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I don't think he's interested in that at all. No. Um, but yeah, and then with Wes Anderson, I would say that Darjeeling Limited, he is literally throwing away the father's baggage yeah. at the end of the yeah. movie. And everything after that, moves away from the dad issues that really dominated the first half of his career. Um, and yeah, with Anderson, Paul Thomas, you see that divide. It's interesting also though, you know, with Fincher, Fincher has that like panic room to Zodiac break, where I think also he was probably kind of reconfiguring or recontextualizing how to do movies. Um, though I think he like Tarantino are more driven by box office success than, than Paul Thomas or, or Wes Anderson. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think, what I, speaking of which, is just brief aside from your aside, one of the things that I always find so adorable about PTA, mm -hmm. I find this so adorable about him, is how off his instincts are as to what people are wanting from him in terms of like uh, the imagined greater world audience uh, you know, the, 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 in terms of in terms of box office, I just have to say, for, it is it is adorably clueless in that, like the fact that um, you know, I've read in an interview where he talks about like he didn't think Boogie Nights anybody was going to want to see that, like a two and a half hour movie about seventies porn, like is that that's just going to be like an art house hit? And then of course it's like it was humongously popular when it came out, and then he makes something like Punch Drunk Love. And he, he talked about it uh, at, 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 at Cannes where he said, you know, I, I really think like this is going to be my hit. Like, or and he had a much years later interview with Francis Ford Coppola where yeah, they yeah. were talking about failures. And Coppola, you know, mentioned, you know, my favorite film of yours is Punch Drunk Love, but that didn't, you know, that didn't do too well. And, you know, and PTA is being very sheepish and smiling. He's like, yeah, you know, I figured, I thought that was going to be the one. He's like, I thought this was the one that was going to make me like, this was going to be the runaway success. And of course, you know, no one sees it. And then, then you have a surprise hit, like there will be blood, which again, I think he felt would probably be good with the critics, but I, I don't know anyone who looks at it and goes, this is going to be, this is going to be a smash. This, this is going to be a zeitgeist capturing, you know, piece of work that is going to define the second half of the, the 2000s. Well, I think, I think with Punch Drunk Love, I think he came about it in a very good way, which is, that he was trying to work within Adam Sandler's kind of, you know, frequency and wanted to align that to his frequency. Sure. And I think he thought, oh, I can make an Adam Sandler film for the masses. And what he ended up doing was making an art film starring Adam Sandler. 
<laughs> and that brings me, though, to his choice to adapt a little movie called Inherent Vice in a way in which, now look, I don't know what more I have to do to convince you people that I love this movie, but know that I love this movie. So I say this with affection. I don't know how a filmmaker who has apparently, you know, very, uh, uh, can have very populist tastes at times when, when, you, when he talks about the movies that he truly loves. I don't know how any filmmaker makes this movie as it is and expects it to do well. Like, I don't think it was released as any kind of act of perversity. I don't think he's, I don't think he was trying to make Lou Reed's metal machine music. Uh, but I, I am always curious about his choices. And I feel like he is a, you know, I do without sounding ultra pretentious. I do think he is a true artist in that he has to do what he's got to do, what feels right to him, even if it's a mystery to someone else, even if the other people can't understand why Reynolds Woodcock has to be named Reynolds Woodcock and has to wear a bow tie. He knows that that's what feels right. So he's going to go with that. And I, I, I find his choices vis-a-vis -vis this film to be so interesting because I, I can't imagine a man of his intellect is making this movie and then watching the final cut and going, yeah, this works. This, the, they're going to love this. They're, they're going to get, or, or is he doing the James Joyce thing? Do you think finishing Ulysses and going, this is what the college students, this is what's going to keep them busy a hundred years from now, because that's when they're going to get it. My guess is at this point, he knows that he is super talented. And I think that, I think he would probably be happy with some sort of Academy recognition, if only because I think it would help his box office. Sure. Um, my guess is at this point, he's just kind of like, I'm going to do what I do. And, you know, Bradley Cooper wants to work with me. So <laughs> but I have to double back for a second. Do it. John Holmes having an entirely like a, such a large cock that he can't get hard is the perfect metaphor for America. <laughs> right. <laughs> Or capitalism. I, I mean, that's that's pulp Shakespeare right there, baby. I mean, I'm just saying. come on. That is that is a wonderfully for for 2020. That is a wonderfully American metaphor. And now I, now I want to go home and watch Boogie Nights. By the way, so everything I've said, you're cool with. You're not gonna like throw ninja stars at me for anything I said. You know, you know. Hey, I am open to all manner of opinions on this show. Well, most manner of opinions, uh, as long as you don't vote Republican, I'm cool. Uh, but yeah, no, well, because you don't like Coke kid. I can live with that. I can live without, I can live without that. I mean, we've had people on that hate to hate this film and I'm cool with that for the most part. They're never coming back, but I was cool with it. Um, and well, so, yeah, I, I, you don't I, have to, you don't have to love Coke kid. I, I'm glad, I am glad though, amongst, <laughs> amongst the listeners and amongst, uh, uh, the guests, I, I, I am actually, uh, tickled that Coke kid and weed that has become part of the show's vernacular. Uh, there's even a there's a there's a listener who even made a uh, increment vice bingo and you get a spot the second uh, coke kid and weed dad is mentioned on the show so if you're playing tonight good luck well i will i will help someone with the the vincent card at some point or the <laughs> square at some point i'm sure um you know some, vincent and delicato <laughs> throwing that one out there too i'm going to give you guys a freebie yeah. uh, but the th I, I was going to say though also, um, and you can speak to this, at a certain point in my life, I looked a lot like Philip Seymour Hoffman. So it's quite possible that being in my 20s watching Boogie Nights and Magnolia, where Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing characters who are um, not flattering. 
<laughs> They're not the most dignified of gents. Yeah, that, that might have contributed at some point. I don't know. At some point, I will revisit these films, and perhaps I will uh, fall in love with them. But I think, you know, often they talk about, like, young man movies and old man movies. Mm -hmm. they, they are affectionately young man movies, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're, they're, there's, all, they're, there's so much to enjoy in them, but they are, they're very broad. The last time I watched Boogie Nights, I remember being really shocked at how broad and kind of goofy the humor was. Like, <laughs> there's no slur on the film, but there are some really, like, wah, 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 uh, moments for all the pathos and all of the, the horror and the sadness and the humanity. There are some just, like, goofball, like, sitcom -y moments there and that's cool and I, I, I think that PTO probably go well yeah I'm just trying to make you laugh I mean I like that stuff but yeah. they they are kind of shockingly broad when you time travel back from having just finished Phantom Thread and then you throw Boogie Nights on it's it's like a shot of adrenaline like right to the brain it's 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 jarring it's or some other kind of upper yeah know? yeah why not why not cocaine perhaps would be a better metaphor why not <laughs> why not so We'll eventually get to the scene. We're gonna, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Uh, something I wanted to talk to you because I think something, or something I wanted you to talk about, uh, because I think you're interested in it, is as we begin to sidle up to the scene a little bit more. I know that you wanted to talk, a do a little bit more uh, due diligence in terms of comparing and contrasting this film uh, and its, uh, and its relationship to other films of its ilk. Well, and I think there's a few films that you have in the hopper. That you kind of wanted to bring to bear vis-a-vis -vis Inherent Vice? I think, I think that I, I put this genre to four. There are four movies I think of when I think of Inherent Vice, right? Okay, give them to me. Long Goodbye, mm -hmm. Big Lebowski, This, and My Beloved Under the Silver Lake. And <laughs> shout out to Brianna who mentioned it before. <laughs> shout out to the Ziggs. To the Ziggs? Because <laughs> um, she, she mentioned it, but she didn't really dwell on it. But what I, I love about those movies is they, they're all kind of druggy, but they're druggy in different ways. Like, Elliot Gould's Philip Marlowe is not on drugs. Nope. The film is. The film is not so. <laughs> but, you know, the film is hanging out with the girls next door doing yoga yeah. naked. But Marlowe is not. But uh, I'm trying to think of other movies where it's, you know, like a lot of these are called stoner detective movies. I, I think Under the Silver Lake may be more ketamine, but um... this is why you're off the show. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. I mean, like, but I, I wouldn't put these in the same category as Nightmares. No, which is more of a neon noir. But then also, I don't, I don't know if I consider Lebowski or or Inherent Vice noirs per se. Because I think, well, I think, I think Vice gets closest. To yeah. something like night moves I, I it's not pure nor but it it it's it's it kind of sidles over it looks it looks at, it looks at the genre area where all the other movies are hanging out kind of looks at them for a minute and checks them out and throws them a nod i think well noir is such an interesting label because it doesn't really mean anything it's, sure. it's more like a tonality i think for me I, I tend to think of the 50s and sort of the you know the post-war like there is evil under the surface there's this violence under the surface that we're not dealing with so out of the past that was a little earlier, that to me is quintessential noir. I don't know if I put, say, Big Sleep sleep in that category of, of noir. It's more noir adjacent to me. I don't it's, know how you feel. I, no, no, I, would, I, I think you're right. I think it's actually closer to something like Inherent Vice, uh, where Inherent Vice is at, where 
I mean, it's especially because you know it was it was booked more as a, a Bogart and McCall movie, so there is there is such it is shot through with such optimism and humor, and that kind of that that line of scum that needs to to slick across the top of your storyline to be pure noir. It's just simply not there. So actually, I think that The Big Sleep is much closer to wherever on the Venn diagram Vicelands than something like Out of the Past or Kiss Me Deadly. Well, honestly, I would I would put Big Sleep in this like if 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 it weren't sort of defined by drugginess, I think it would fit perfectly. I mean, that movie though is probably soaked in gin, so you know we could we could maybe put an asterisk next to it and put in this category. But I think what's fascinating about these movies, all of which get compared to each other all the time, yep, it's sort of the dialogue is that none of them none of them are really like each other at all. I mean, the thing about Elliot Gould's Philip Marlowe is he may keep saying it's okay by me, it's okay with me. It's not. At the end, it isn't. Like, he's trying to be Zen, but he is not Zen at all. He's pissed off at the end. He loses his cool. He kills his best friend because he feels so betrayed. That's not Zen. <laughs> this is literally the least Marlowe thing we have ever seen Phil Marlowe do on screen although it's right it's i'm not, I'm not one of those people that, that poo-poos that ending i think it's like the perfect ending but that's the least marlo we have ever seen marlo be is when, when that and that rage unleashes itself at the end of long goodbye whereas lebowski even though he obviously has moments of of uh anger and out you know blowing his top he is way more zen than gould's marlo <laughs> he is way more like okay that's okay Okay. <laughs> I'm going to do it like a Rick Moranis. Michael <laughs> <laughs> McDonald impression. Oh, well. But I know I love all those movies. And I, I hope that, um, you know, the funny thing is, though, that Lebowski did okay, but it wasn't much of a hit. And yeah. I think it was a little bit of a disappointment following Fargo. Um, you know, Inherent Vice didn't do particularly well. Under the Silver Lake was practically buried by its studio. Oh, it was, um, it was it was taken out to the woodshed and murdered. It, and it's so unfortunate because um, you know, we were talking before this started about our midnight movies. Like, there are all those movies that, uh, that we put on at, late at night. And we share at least two of them. Uh, what were yours? Uh, well, as I've said, I think I've said this once or twice before, uh, I've got a long one and i got a short one, depending on how tired I am. If I'm really gonna settle in for the evening, if I'm if I'm if I'm gonna go for it, I'm gonna put on Inherent Vice. If I need something, if I'm I'm, if I'm tired, I'm not feeling well, I just want something to get me there, get me to sleep. Uh, not because it's boring, but just because I know it's a hard 80 minutes and I can I can enjoy it and go to bed. That would be Walter Hill's The Driver. And as, if I'm feeling frisky, like I said, I'll I'll, I'll kind of go more in the middle, and I'll reach for uh, Macquarie's uh, The Way of the Gun. For me, it's Inherent Vice. The driver, like the driver has long been like, if I'm up at two in the morning and I've been writing or whatever, and it's just like, I need to zone out. That's totally my, my zone out movie. Inherent Vice, definitely. Under the Silver Lake has moved into that spot of like, wow. if it's one or two in the morning and I'm a little bit, you know, toasty or you know, super sober, I want to put that on. Uh, if I'm out dancing, which obviously I can't do now, and I'm home at two in the morning, often it's Curacao. Like really? I want to watch, I want to watch Hidden Fortress or you know Jimbo or Sanjuro or even Seven Samurai. Maybe watch it over two nights. Sure. Um, I have to say, uh, if my voice sounds a little more Isaac Hayes than you you the normal, it's only because 
uh, there is smoke outside. And <laughs> <laughs> we, we really, for those, those who aren't West Coast listeners, we are really getting apocalyptic out here of late. Like it's, yeah. it's getting nasty out here. So, um, yeah, no, I, I love all four of those films. And I, I think it's a really, or five if we include Big Sleep. Are there any other films you would, you would put in there? Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've mentioned uh, so many on the show in terms of what I think would fit in that Venn diagram of what this movie does. I, I've, you can throw in The Late Show. You can throw in any... Oh, my, The Late Show, of course. And then, you know, whenever I think of Shasta Faye, I always think of Primager's uh, Fallen Angel. I think of Linda Darnell. Like, she is so... Her and Shasta Faye, like, they, they would have a conversation with one another. They, they, those, those two films really talk to each other. And, hey, uh, uh, Increment Vice Bingo Players, I always throw this one out. Not a good movie, but a fun one. Uh, if you're down for ponytails and uh, uh, snow cone fights, and that would be Hal Ashby's Eight Million Ways to Die. You got to throw that one out there. Uh, it's another great, Jeff, well, not great. It's an in- interesting Jeff Bridges film noir. Uh, but, you know, the one that I really wanted to dig dig my my teeth into with you was under the silver lake because i actually feel like these two films they do really speak to each other and and the the thing the thing of it is with something like under the silver lake you can't put it past writer director david robert mitchell to not be doing it on purpose the the some of the some of the synchronicities and the connections between these two films a film that i know you love I was I came prepared today to talk about this film with you, so we're we are really going deep on this one, kids. Uh, I'm, I, I'm fully I, excited about that. I mean, there's there's a shot in under this. Well, there's there's a duo of shots, or no, it's it's just the one where he turns around and it's the Dioptis shot, and in the background is the Hitchcock grave. Hitchcock's grave, stone, and he's doing a Brian De Palma shot with a Hitchcock gravestone in the background, like. This is obviously someone aware of their place in making this kind of movie. Yeah. Um, and, and that's I, one of the reasons why I love that movie so much. It is, took me a little is, bit it took me a little bit longer to to fall in love with it than I think that you, than I think you did. Although you you were very adamant in reaching out to me and telling me that this is a movie that I need to watch. Uh, you know, for the first hour of that film, I started to feel a little alienated because uh, as I said, the first hour of that film definitely feels like semiotics, the motion picture. And um gets it's a little bit like as you said it's it's structured a little bit like the uber of some of these directors where we talked about where the first hour just feels like pure commentary especially the first time you've seen it and you don't know what this is building towards uh the second how the second half however i definitely tuned in and fell for what it was going for and you realize why that first hour is constructed the way it is with this character's obsession with with mystery and narrative and pop culture and how he he builds that to create a story for himself to live in and a purpose for himself to live in the way that we can sometimes gird our lives with the songs and the TV shows and the movies that make us feel something. And one of the, God, the, there's so much to unpack there with how these two films speak to each other. But one of the first things I wanted to say is, uh, and I think you and I have actually talked about this uh, before is how they are both the great grandchildren of something like the big sleep in that I love how both of these films riff on that Bogart big sleep idea that our hero can just attract any woman he meets and get laid at the drop of a fedora that that, that weird easy sex trope of big sleep where our detective everybody kind of wants him whether it's Doc with Luz or Penny or Shasta or Sam and Under the Silver Lake with just about any woman he has a prolonged conversation with 
kind of falls in thrall of him, not seeing who he is. And, and, and I'm never not tickled at seeing how that thing that we always accept with Bogart in the old movies where everybody just wants, he's Bogart, of course everyone's going to want him. To see that translated in a modern movie, it's so kind of weird and confusing. Like the first time you watch Inherent Vice and everybody wants to have sex with Doc, everyone that meets him, it, it, it just, it, it never ceases to tickle me. Well, I, I would say that the, the lose scene is definitely like the big sleep librarian sequence of the movie where uh, Anderson is definitely, and Pinchon are, are definitely like paying homage to those sorts of movies where the detective shows up and, and the help want to fuck him. Um, I think what makes, what makes it so great in Under the Silver Lake is the reason why all these women want to fuck the main character is because he's Andrew Garfield. Because he looks like Andrew Garfield, yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, no, that's exactly how that would work. <laughs> but also, I, the movie makes it text. He stinks, like literally stinks. He smells terrible. He is a terrible person. He, he stinks. He literally stinks. You, you shouldn't want to be around him, but he is attractive enough that he gets away with smelling like shit. I do love, it. I love I love how the movie does everything it can to warn every person he meets to stay away from this man. Stay well, and it's, away from this man. It, it's one of those great scenes in cinema where um, he's going back to his car and there's these kids, the kids. who are egging it and carving on it and he just beats the shit out of them, shoving eggs in their mouth and just wailing on him. And it's like, this is the hero of your story. <laughs> and... And it's like, you enjoy the moment for the kind of cathartic release of, oh, sure. he caught them. But it's like, the punishment does not fit the crime. There's, he, that, there's that sickening moment where then you, you take a moment because you're in the thrall of, you know, you're thinking of the time that someone cut you off or someone like keyed your car and you're in thrall for a moment. And then you're like, oh, wait, shit, this kid's nine. Like, this yeah. isn't like some like 15 year old punk. Like, this kid's like eight or nine and he's just beating the shit out of them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not cool at all. <laughs> but you enjoy it. And, oh, and there's so many, like, well, and what I love about that is that, you know, we both love Body Double. I know you were posting about it oh, earlier today. Oh, my God. Favorite to Palma. And, oh, it's, it's masterful. It's, it's great. But the one thing, and it's kind of there in Inherent Vice, Under the Silver Lake is dissecting a terrible person. You know, the, this guy who, you know, it's like, well, what if he's, you know, like, what does it mean to be a, a voyeur? And it's like, the the, pre, the presupposition of Under the Silver Lake is, oh, he would be a terrible person. <laughs> you can't be this much of a, of, of a voyeur and invest in other people's lives and if not you aren't be an asshole. Yeah, if you aren't garbage. And Inherent Vice gets to that a little bit, I would say. Like, there there is some deconstruction of, of, of Doc, uh, specifically in his relationship to Shasta. But it's not as it's it, it's not the subtext. It's not it's not the conversation of the film. Sure, sure. It's just part of it. But what I think is interesting about that, though, and you hit on it right there, is yeah, you know, Doc doesn't have the uh, the body double under the Silver Lake. Well, yeah, yes, he's our hero, but he's also a voyeur, so that means he's a he's also a piece of shit. But what they what 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 under the Silver Lake and inherent vice share and you know if, if you can handle the fact that it would be a five-hour double feature probably closer to six with trailers and inter intermission and the, the reason these these two films work so well together besides being kind of interesting travel logs of uh, socal in the la area is that 
both movies scrutinize our need for narrative and why we need it. And again, shout out to Increment Vice Bingo. We're gonna I'm gonna name drop Diddy in here. Uh, both films find their leads chasing a mystery about the super rich, and out of that, out of that mystery that is not meant for them, that is not meant for their class of person, they construct pieces of their own self-made mystery. They make themselves a story in which they can live, as Didion would say, uh, for themselves to live in. And it's a story that assuages their wounded egos in terms of their relationship with women or the women they view as their women. Uh, both men essentially craft these, in both films, shape-shifting mysteries in which they believe that they are the only ones that have discovered this, this kidnapping. Uh, and they must rescue, in quotes, a woman that they imagine loves them or could love them and who, they, and who these men must certainly love or at least believe they love. Both films are about these two guys making up a mystery where there is not one. A mystery, there is a real mystery as to why these, the two rich men in both films disappear. And it's pretty quickly, it's pretty easily solved when you, when you go back and you look at it. But then they build on top of that their own mystery. It's their own story that they can live in, in which they're the hero, in which these women are, are damsels in distress in need of their rescue. And both films end with the women going, no, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, and, and both films kind of end with a confrontation, uh, between, uh, very sad, I found, in, in both films. I, I think the phone call conversation and Under the Silver Lake is kind of heartbreaking. Uh, not because I'm heartbroken for Sam, because he is, a, he, as you said, he's a piece of shit. It's just the sadness of that realization of, oh, this person, I meant nothing to them. Like, yeah, I, I love how uh, she she even says to him under the silver lake, but you only knew me one night. And I and I think that that really throws into relief what happens in in Heron Vice, which is, yeah, Doc is not a skeevy voyeur, but there is something about him where, at times well-intentioned though he may be he does kind of treat shasta as this chess piece in this mystery he's building it for himself to rescue her from and i think it's i can't think of a lot of other films that quite use the vernacular and the structure of noir to definitely indict and under the silver lake and kind of gently indict in inherent vice that kind of masculinity and that kind of usage of mystery narrative to save yourself, but telling yourself you're doing it to save someone else. Well, no, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely perfect. The, the, the mystery they're actually trying to solve is not the mystery at hand. The mystery no. of themselves and their relationship with other people. And, yeah. and one of the things, one of the things that both men in those films encounter is their... There's, there's, a, there's a moment in which the story that they tell themselves, the mystery that they make, they discover that it is forged out of the pieces disseminated to them by the men who made them. The, yeah. the stronger, larger, more powerful, richer men who made these protagonists. In the case of Sam and Under the Silver Lake, it's the songwriter who, this is this mythic figure who is created spoilers by the way i guess uh if uh who has created all of the music and culture from which sam has crafted his own identity over the all the music and culture for like the past 50 60 years and for doc it is the anchor of today's sequence 
It's Crocker Finway, the crown prince of Palos Verdes, the man who bankrolled Doc's first job tracing uh, and chasing down Crocker's daughter, Japonica, and by proxy then is the man who funded Doc's entire detective career. And both films kind of feature this come to Jesus moment or come to Satan moment, I, I, I suppose, in which they discover the men who, who, who made them and who basically tell them to fuck off. And I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I love that. They have no respect. Yeah, it's, it's easy to compare both to the architect scene in, in, in Matrix Reloaded. And then, but, but also that both ergo, come in, Ergo, vis concordantly. Yeah. But also in the fact that in all of these movies, these are sequences that are coming towards the end of the film where the first time you watch it, you may not completely understand all that you're getting because you, just at that point, you're just kind of overwhelmed with all the details. Sure. Um, but also they come at a point where you're like, why are we having this conversation now? Now, why now? What is, like, what is this launch pad taking me to? Yeah, especially this- in Inherent Vice, you're dealing with the, you know, our Doc has just killed the bad guys. It's, like, <laughs> it's over. Yeah, isn't the movie over? But no, there's another, you know, 20 minutes to go. And we also, we, we found Mickey Wolfman too by this point. Like we know where Wolf- Mickey's at. We know where Shast is at. The bad guys are dead. And now there's this guy. Yeah. Speaking of this guy, let's take a moment. Let's, let's, let's watch this scene. Wait, let's before act- we get there. Oh, wow, 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 okay. Before we get there, I want to ask you some questions and throw some things out. Okay, go nuts. What do you make of the food in this movie? <laughs> you mean how nobody eats it? Well, but also, you know, the, the first sequence at the pizza place, mm-hmm. there's all those weird ingredients on top of it. It looks like there's marshmallows. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the that person that's been... making the pizza with, uh, you know, when Koi's there. The pizza dough is just kind of like not really, and then the food they order from Jillian Bell, you know, when when he's having lunch with uh, Mr. Smilex, it's what, jellyfish cacciatore teriyaki. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in the case of the 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 fine pizza that you can find at Pipeline Pizza in Gordita Beach is, I think, just that's, that's straight out of the book. Sight gags from uh, Pinchon's wacky-ass menu from, from Pipeline. As for, I mean, you know, uh, as for the, the eats in um, the Sancho Smilex scene, I think a lot of that is also, again, uh, Pinchon being clever with things like tequila zombies, which never, never doesn't make me happy. Uh, but I, looking at you, looking at you, I'm guessing you have thoughts on this because I'll be honest. This is one of those. This is one of those nuts to inherent vice that I have kind of yet to crack. Or in total, in in, in under the Silver Lake fashion, I'm not sure if it's a nut to be cracked. If there's any real filament connecting any of these, like it could just be. Oh well, no. The pizza, the pizza being made at uh, Pipeline is goofy because it was goofy in the book, and we just like the goofy, um, the funny referential. Uh, movie, the movie names of all of the food at the beachside diner where Sanch likes to eat and, you know, Pinchon's always working co- uh, pop culture references into his work, so we thought we'd do that here. And then, you know, in the Topanga Canyon house where they're making pizza, it's like, well, they're all stone shitheads. Of course their pizza's gonna suck. It's, it's gonna be terrible. They're all high out of their minds listening, listening to the newest version of the boards play their latest hit single. Uh, you know, they're not paying attention to the pizza. They're, they're hanging out with the Nazi bikers. But other than that, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great vice question. It's a great under the Silver Lake question. I don't know if there's a mystery there 
or if it's just us starting to look at the codes and hearing the dogs bark and thinking that it's telling us something. I was just curious because you've seen this movie more than pretty much anyone who is involved with it <laughs> and maybe even more than some of them. Uh, the other thing I wanted to throw out before we move into the, the, the segment, um, I was writing notes to myself as I do this and I made a typo. Um, it's Coy and Hope, right? Coy and Hope. Um, when I made the typo, I accidentally spelled it joy. So it's hope and joy. Oh, I don't know if that means could it. be something. Could be something. We got to whip out our Nintendo Power magazine, figure this out. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's, that's probably my most under the Silver Lake conspiracy that it's all about getting hope and joy back. Oh, look at that. Now, that, now that's a nice moment right there. For that, I'm going to be okay with you stopping my, my wonderful transition from Crocker Fenway. I, I, I was really building us a landing strip there to go right into this scene, but that's worth it. Although I got to say, kind of wacky with, uh, with someone like Pinchon, who is so known for his impossibly alliterative and clever character names, that he so nakedly names these two. He, Hope Harlingen is a character who is literally quite hopeful perhaps the most hopeful character in the book because she's she's the one that refuses to believe her dead husband is dead she's just not going to believe it because she has hope and then coy is a rather coy man lurking in the shadows uh playing it cool and i have again much like the food i have nothing to add to that other than i think it's kind of adorable that uh a writer of pinchon's level is just like well she's hopeful so uh hope sure that works print we're done good yeah. On that note, all right, let's take a peek at Mr. Crocker Fenway. Japonica's dad? Um, what happened this time? You have something that belongs to some people I represent and they'd like it back. Oh, so you're a principal in all this? It's only because of me and our small transaction over Japonica that you're still alive. Well, we're so grateful, sir. So, uh, what do we do? I suppose someone wants their, uh, back why don't we meet this evening at six o'clock at my club at portola in elysian park mm -hmm. they're just good a jacket and tie if possible i see you then Mr. Sportello? Mr. Fenway. <clears throat> to a peaceful resolution. How's the uh, family? 
Japonica is doing fine, if that's what you mean. You know, I, uh, I think I saw old Japonica the other day at my doctor's office. You ever run across a dentist named Rudy Blatnoid? The son of a bitch who, until recently, was corrupting my daughter? Yes, I do seem to recall the name. He perished in a trampoline accident, didn't he? Well, LAPD aren't so sure it was an accident. And you'd like to know if I did it? What possible motive would I have? Just because the man preyed on a, an emotionally vulnerable child? Forced her to engage in sexual practices that might appall even a sophisticate like yourself? Does that mean I'd have any reason to see his miserable pedophile career come to an end? What a vindictive person you must imagine me. Mm. Well, I, I did suspect he was fucking his receptionist, but when Dennis doesn't, somehow they all take him to dentist school. Anyhow, it's a long way from strange and weird sex, isn't it? What about when he forced my little girl to listen to original cast albums of Broadway musicals while he had his way with her? Or the tastelessness of the decor of resort hotel rooms he took her to during entodontist conventions, the wallpaper, the lamps. Japonica uh, is of legal age now, isn't she? In a father's eye, they're always too young. To the matter at hand, those I represent are prepared to offer you a generous compensation package for the safe return of their property. Suppose it didn't have to be in the form of money. Well, money would be a lot easier. There's a saxophone player named Coy Harlingen. He's been working undercover for different anti-subversive outfits, including the LAPD. And he's come to feel lately that he made the wrong career choice. Lost him his family, his freedom. Like you, he only has one daughter. Please. Okay. Well, he wants out. I think I can square it with the heat. There's this other bunch, Vigilant California. And, well, whoever's running them, of course. My guess is they prefer he not disclose any confidential information. Last thing you'd ever do. Your personal guarantee. I'll go after myself if he tries anything. Then we have a deal. That's all you wanted. No money now. You sure? Well, now, how much money would I have to take from you so I wouldn't lose your respect? It's been late for that, Mr. Sportello. People like you lose all claim to respect the first time they pay anybody rent. Well, I may not be as well-connected and for sure not as much into revenge as you folks are. But if you jive with me, my man, I say to you, So, what are we going to do this handoff? 
So, as we were saying before the scene began, this this is def this this isn't just kind of this definitely is our architect in the Matrix Reloaded sequence. And, and you know, I don't know what emotional Rubik's cube you cycled through when you were watching the Matrix Reloaded, but I know that I was pretty much uh, chin deep and outright despair at what I was watching, uh, and that was quadrupled when the the architect sequence happened and i'm just sitting there going, what the fuck is this 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 strange out of nowhere very erudite very cultured very well mannered very upper crust uh british dude uh, laying out in pure uh text that even jean baudrillard or michelle Foucault would just look at and roll their eyes in confusion at explaining the nature of the matrix and what all of this has been about that we've been watching for the last uh two hours and you you it's it's the final moment for me that cemented like wow there's just no redemption like there's no moment that's going to save all of this and tie this movie into a bow and make me go oh that's what it was and i can love it again now that said obviously i don't feel that same way about the Crocker Fenway sequence. It, it does not ruin the film. It doesn't uh, destroy the film. It, but it does do something that I think is rather interesting and enjoyable, which is, I said, as, as I said earlier, this is a moment, much like the songwriter sequence that happens a little bit earlier in the scheme of things in Under the Silver Lake, this is a moment where the man who has helped create our hero is showing up and ripping the scales from his eyes and basically telling him the world that you saw, the world you thought you were living in, it doesn't exist. This is my world. I made it. And you're, you're just a pawn here. You're, you're, you're not that big and you're not that important in the scheme of things. And I don't know, I find that so, as funny as this sequence is, and we're going to get into, we can talk about the laughs that, that are packed in and around this sequence. There's something so cold and kind of depressing in this moment, especially because Crocker Fenway, shout out to the great Martin Donovan. He basically looks like one of the guys from the 80s, 80s and uh, savings and loan scandal that's to come. Like this is the, he is the the shape of things to come, the shape of Reagan's to come. And the, 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 the quiet despair of knowing that, like it, it, it really kind of infuses and infests this scene with a sadness that I don't even know if it was purposeful or not, but I always feel it when I watch it. Well, there's also something to it, too, for those of us who grew up on Hal Hartley movies that, you know, he was kind of the face of independent yeah. cinema in, like, 1990 because he was, you know, one of the regulars. And there's something kind of perverse and fitting about him you know, some 30 years later becoming, you know, between this and the Marvel movies, like a face of the banality of evil. Yeah. That, that he is this milquetoast person who, with all this power who's kind of vanilla kind of boring, kind of a bullshit kind of dude, but, you know, also he can kill you and he won't think about it. Well, that's what makes him so terrifying. And to, to, to speak to, to, to our pal, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think a lot of people say, well, you know, the one good thing, this is a real, this is a real left field reacher. The one good thing about Mission Impossible 3 is Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance because, uh, because it's like, he's so disinterested in anyone. No one is a threat to him. Like, you could argue that, oh, no, he was just picking up a paycheck and he's bored in the movie. But no, it's like he's playing a man for whom no one is a threat. 
and thus everyone is kind of just a gnat that he has to swat at and there is something so chilling about crocker in this scene he's kind of playing with doc a little bit like this is this is a bland amusement he's like well you got my daughter back it's only because of that that you're here you know what what do you want can can i just give you some money or am i gonna have to shoot i'm gonna have to have you shot like which is it gonna be and there's the the banality of like like you said just the his his stiff rum and coke his in his like a little elysian park bar there's just something about it that is so coldly blithely disinterested in all of this so i you mentioned matrix reloaded I was at the very first screening of that movie. It was it was for an I, I used to work as a film buyer for the theater chain, so uh, I was in L.A. for uh, Warner Brothers event for their summer movies, and they brought out Joel Silver and they brought out Lawrence Fishburne, and we're just like, we're so happy to show this to you. You know, super excited. Oh my god! Oh my god! You guys, you get to see the first public screening of the movie. No one's seen it before you. It's we just finished it. And I think they brought out Carrie Ann Moss too. And the experience of watching it with a room full of exhibitors was like spending two and a half hours watching a balloon deflate. <laughs> and you could feel the temperature in the room just keep dropping as it went along because even though some of the fight scenes were exciting, the gas was off. The big problem with that scene, or the big problem with that movie is like, there's been all this action and it just stops. It stops for like 10 minutes of just nonstop dialogue. And in another way this scene kind of compares to that is that we have had the most exciting sequence in the movie right before this. Like yeah. Doc has escaped death and killed the two main bad guys. And again, it's that moment of like, isn't, isn't the movie over? But, but no, it's not. And he has to face this guy and it's great because, you know, there's that, there's that wonderful shot of him in his apartment and he gets this phone call <laughs> and you can hear it in his voice. Like he, he did not connect the Crocker to possibly being a part of Golden Fang. He, his first reaction is, oh, Japonica's dad? What happened this dead? time? What, what can I do for her? Yeah. And then it becomes this moment of like, nope, I am the big bad. And, but it's great too, because at this point, and it's different than in the book, you know, Crocker says, hey, yeah, is it a suit? Well, no, uh, he asks if it's a suit and tie thing. And Crocker says, yes, right? But then when he shows up, he's wearing like a brown <laughs> jacket and just this Indian. Little turquoise neck piece. Like, I, I don't know what you would call it. Like this piece of ornate jewelry with like a bolo tie at the bottom. Yeah, it's definitely a, a sign that he is giving this guy the finger from the get. Whereas in the book, he's wearing like a John Garfield suit. Because <laughs> he's watching a John Garfield movie right when uh, when Gwen Crocker calls him. And, well, that's and I believe, I believe it, it, he's described as having a Liberace time. <laughs> so it, it is an outlandish outfit, but not in the same way. That's something that uh, you bring up that I, I find very interesting about this sequence, and it's it's a it's a it's a thread or a a, a tone that I haven't quite gotten my arms around maybe maybe it's because there's nothing that really all there's not that much to it there's nothing there other than doc's kind of disdain for what this man represents but as you said doc in this scene shows up you're basically flipping this guy the bird from the get-go and he also does so with his attitude like doc very rarely regardless of who he's dealing with whether it's whether it's bigfoot whether it's you know some, some weirdos at the topanga canyon house uh 
he very rarely will display outright disdain and utter contempt for anyone he deals with, even with someone like Mickey uh, or, or Sloan Wolfman. He, he, there is always this little oomph of, of Demi-esque humanity and empathy in him. And yet with Crocker Fenway, Doc is outright hateful yeah, to the point when, you know, Crocker is even mentioning, you know, oh, well, you mean the, the pedophile dentist who, rapes my, who raped my daughter? And Doc makes a joke. He's like, well, you know, fucking a secretary, what dentist doesn't, you know, uh, it comes with their, 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 their license. And, and I'm curious what you make of that. Is it just the fact that Crocker Fenway with all his South Bay money is just the face of pure conservative evil? And Doc is giving it to him because it's a ballsy move because Doc is showing up here to save a man's life. He's showing up to essentially negotiate the release of Koi. And he doesn't really show up showing any kind of real respect or any kind of care to not fuck this up. And I I always find that interesting, his behavior here. It's interesting, too, because I, I watched it again. And it's like you can see Anderson telling the story via where the camera is and it starts with like a two shot yeah and the minute he says what what motive could i have it kind of gets in closer on both of them and but the funny thing is when he starts talking about his motive it's partly like he seems as upset with his daughter being with the dentist as he is with her listening to original cast albums of broadway music (laughs) the lamps the wallpaper the lamps and curtains of these tawdry motels (laughs) <laughs> at endodontist conventions and as like the moment you can have sympathy for crocker it is completely undercut by how he views you know her surroundings it, it doesn't feel like he's mentioning these things because he's offended that his daughter is being raped it feels like he's offended because it's so it's cheap. gauche yeah it's gauche it's cheap it's some it's a place where doc would go so yeah and it, like when you watch it like Anderson keeps getting closer and closer in, until he makes that joke, until Doc makes that joke of, of you know, talking about, well, you're fucking your secretary, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and it kind of diffuses him a little bit. But then it's back to this kind of like getting up close and, and they're always too young when you're a father. The father's eye, they're always too young. Oh, God. You know, so much of that feels like how the men, how men like Crocker, you know, for, well, let's get pretentious for a minute because, again, the sky is, is on fire outside and we're living in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, in a father's eye, they're always too young. So much of that feels how the men like Crocker Fenway view America as a whole, view the world as a whole, as, view themselves as the caretakers of the country and where we are. And the people they're taking care of they're just a little too young to take care of themselves. They're a little too young to know the full truth, to know the what, and, and we have to treat them like children because they are idiots. And there's there's something to that. I obviously it's chilling because of the again the the casualness of this man's evil, uh, and, and how kind of bored and flippant he is with it. But also, and obviously the 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 terrible misogyny of it in that he's. Again, he's a, he's a father who is less concerned about the statutory rape of his daughter and more concerned about that it took place at a, in a location that wasn't classy enough. Uh, but, again, but also that idea of that, you know, in, in the book it's made more explicit, but in the scene it's, it's done a little bit as well, where Crocker is the landlord and Doc is the guy that pays him rent. 
and th- that, 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 that relationship of, you know, you're always going to be too young. People like me need to be in charge to take care of that. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I, I want to focus on something you said. And it's like he is obsessed with kind of a patriarchal view of sexuality. Yeah. And as much as we may not like it, that totally reflects on Dom. Oh, uh, that's, that was my, that's literally my next sentence here is because that's, that's Doc's relation. That's his view of his relationship with Shasta. I was, I was, I was making some notes on it and I feel like uh, I wrote this and maybe this is a little too, but it can't be because of this podcast that uh, (laughs) Doc is being and Shasta is becoming. And there's something there's something sort of unknowable about her, and that's kind of the brilliance of, of the casting. Because I don't know about you, but I hadn't seen Captain Waters in any of before. Yeah, she had done like one, like I think Lifetime style movie before this. And I think, yeah, I think she had a like series regular role on like Boardwalk Empire, a show I never got around yeah. to. So, um, you know, she was, you know, Rooney Mara in the social network of just kind of like this, you know, explosion of talent in, you know, limited scene, but it's like, what we know of Shasta is that, you know, like she wore one uniform and then she put on another and there's this memory of her and, and she's willing to tap into that memory for Doc. But, you know, that whole sex scene, he's more naked than she is and she's buck naked because she's in control. The entire, st- you know, the entire thing is about her telling him, hey, these are the things I've done. Like, can you, can you get with that? Can you deal with my sexual history? Can you deal with me as a sexual being who needed to maybe do that? And I think her character, not to go off too much, it's like, you know, it's like your friends in college, like sometimes, you know, sometimes you have that friend who gets stoned for like three months and that's all he does. And then it's like, he's kind of done with that. (laughs) You have to get it out of your system though. And then you have some people that they don't ever. It's just, you know, they're going to go down a road and, and you can't go down with you're exactly right. And I think that one of the reasons there are so many things in this movie that confound people as to what, like when you were saying earlier, you know, Glenn Sharlock and Tariq Khalil, like, are the, are those really the plot machinations we need to get doc at Channel View Estates? Couldn't he just go there? Like, does, is, does he need X and Y to get to Z? And I think moments like that are very similar to moments like this Crocker Fenway scene in which a line like that where you get your tightest close-up of Martin Donovan's uh, cold ass face is when he said when he looks right at Doc and he says in a father's eye they're always too young it's because I think so much of these elements exist to kind of thematically or to to undergird the thematic ideas of this film and you know, not to sound like Sam from Under the Silver Lake, but I do think PTA is trying to send us messages and tell us something without explicitly saying it. And I think in this moment, like, as you said, in a father's eye, they're always too young. That's not just the, the cold calculating misogyny of a South Bay shithead. It's not just the attitude of the American right wing for the last God knows how long. Uh, in terms of its relationship with with its populace but it's also it's as you said it's it's doc's attitude which is i probably know what's best here like let me just save you let me save you let me take care of you let me help you be the person that i need you to be be the person that i remember you as country joe in the fish t-shirt bottom half of a flower print bikini be that person 
and I'll be, I can, I can live in that world. I can live in that narrative that I can handle, but you, but you gotta be that. You can't do your own thing. You can't be Japonica. You can't run wild. And I think that's why in a weird way, in, in, in both comical and sad way, the wildness and goofiness of Japonica Fenway and that entire plot line is I think he almost would view what Shasta does as the same level of crazy as Japonica Fenway. Like it is just so beyond what he, what he thinks is what she should be. And, and to, to really quick speak to what you said, not when you're like, I don't want to be, you know, two, two for, in, but this is incre- increment vice. You're talking about, about a, f- a film directed by a guy who in the special features for Magnolia had Fiona Apple pretend to be Magnolia itself dancing around, look, wanting love, begging for love. And he said the, the most PTA line i've ever heard you're just too much you're too much anger you're too much sadness you're just too much fucking too and if there's a better description of uh we dad's films i don't think it's it's it, there's you're gonna find anything better than you're just too fucking too but you damon are not too fucking too by going there well i i hope not uh, but i was gonna say that, that like again it's, 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 like if you watch the scene he is using the distance from our characters to tell the story. Yeah. Like, and how he, like, when he says that line, you know, always too young, it, it backs out to a two shot. And it's less intense for a moment because it's, the conversation has changed. It's over. Martin Donovan has unintentionally revealed more of himself than I think he ever wanted to in this situation. I mean, he kind of takes a breath and has to reset himself emotionally. Like, it's yeah. a little awkward. Doc got him. Yeah. And, and then it's, then it's on to the negotiation generous compensation package yeah you know uh yes money would be a lot easier which again is i i find that idea the idea the, the level of power that these people are as like yeah do we really have to like help someone can we just give you money and you go away the language they understand can we just pay you off and you'll leave like we don't want to have to help someone one of the, one of the great moments is you know the doc making his pitch to free coy says he's got a daughter like you please and yeah like don't don't like how dare you like how how could you even with me don't you know me please like and again the cold amusement of crocker in that moment like really you're gonna like you you think i actually care about a man's love for his daughter really And, and that goes back to the idea of like can can we just make this about dollars and cents does this have to be about feelings and humanity it's so beyond his ken, his ability to recognize that, like, what if we just do something nice? I remembered a point I was going to make before that I had forgotten and came back. The story of Japonica is tragic. Oh, it's heartbreaking. She is, it's not, there is nothing good. And she's not going to place good in the story. Because oh. obviously through this, the dad sees her as 100% a possession of something that he controls. And so, yeah, anyway. (laughs) Pure increment vice, can't even say the name of my show. Uh, Pure increment vice digression right there. And I appreciate it. I was going to say, one of the things I thought while watching this scene for this, um, do you think Doc doesn't want money or anything else besides Koi? Obviously, thematically, him freeing Koi is very important because I think there's definitely 
a spectrum that Koi is on one side and, and Bigfoot's on the other, sort of these men that parallel and shadow Doc. Um, do you think if Doc asks for anything else, it could be, he doesn't ask for anything else because it could be used against him? Well, it's a good question because I mean, money, could he feel like he's on Fenway's leash, which he may already feel because. Well, see, that's the thing that's always gotten me is I think that Doc is already, he's already touched at this point. Like Doc's already tainted. Like he's already taken um, blood money or at least dirty money. Uh, you know, obviously he doesn't know who Crocker Fenway is until this moment. He doesn't realize that, you know, as he says, you know, you're a principal in all this. Uh well, he does mention earlier that he's he knows someone who's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he understands he's a big deal. But I also, you know, I, I don't think, you know, Doc definitely comes from that tradition too of the knockabout detective in this film. Like he never charges anyone money. He literally, like, hell, Coy, uh, you know, when he's like, well, look, you know, keep in mind, you know, I can't really pay you for any of this. And like Doc's like, hey, well, you know, you might be the kind of guy that thinks you can pay with information. In which case, you know, I, I got open ears here. Um, you know, I don't think that Doc is, I don't think that Doc is interested in taking money from just weirdly just about anybody, but surely I don't think that he, I don't think he wants any more money from, from Crocker Fenway to the point that again, this is the most weirdly, maybe not so weirdly because Crocker is, is evil, but this is the most antagonistic we ever see Doc. And the moment that he secures Koi's release and Fenway really is like, really? Like you, you, that's all you want. No money. Like genuinely kind of confused at, at the human that's, that he's looking at right now. Really? Like not a, not a drip of greed in you. The level of, you know, for you or I, it would maybe be a two or a three on the anger scale, but given Doc's relative, you know, kind of laid back attitude, I would call this like a six or a seven, maybe even eight. The level of kind of anger in his rebuttal and he's like now how much money would i have to take from you so as not to lose your respect like he's already looking for a fight at that point like i think he's genuinely insulted because i know i think he's there to get this guy out and i think it it genuinely insults doc's pride that crocker would go really not even like on top of a cherry on top you don't want something like i i don't i don't think he wants anything to do with crocker finway's money ever again but also, I mean, that leads to the most 2020 exchange in the whole movie, which is Crocker saying, people like you lose all claim to respect the first time you pay anyone rent. <laughs> Boy, that move, that line hurts more this year, doesn't it? That's, yeah. um... Well, because what he's saying is if you are not a part of the privileged class. You lose any claim to, to anything. Like yeah, you're... You, have, you have to be, you know, the child of someone who had something who is probably the child of someone who had something yeah like you, you know you your, your feet never touched the ground from the moment you were born and i can't respect you and that attitude is disgusting and uh, i ended up listening to the book uh before this podcast because i'm that kind of nerd and bless your heart book, going above and beyond going above and beyond i have to say the book the book gets into this way more than the film does Though, you know, th th this dialogue is all pretty much from the page, but Doc, Doc has back. a, yeah, Doc says every time one of you gets greedy like that, the karma jump jumps another 200 a month. After a while, that starts to add up. For years under everyone's nose, all this class hatred has started building. Where do you think that's headed? 
Where do you think that's headed? <laughs> and here we are sitting in it. Yeah. Like that couldn't be a more 2020 exchange than, you know, like the rents keep going up, but what are you going to do about it? It's interesting though, because the book ends with him getting a $10,000 payday. And that's his happy ending in the book. Doc's happy ending is that he gets paid. And I think PTA has the better ending with him with, with Shasta. Yeah, he also ends up alone. He also ends up like totally alone with that, with that payout at the end of the book. Like there's, there's nothing. There's, it's just him hoping, hoping that things will be different this time. And you don't get much of a sense that the, the, the Doc's version of the 1970s are going to go any different than ours did. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yes, obviously, obviously, obviously. I, I mean, I'm sure there's someone out there that will debate me, uh, but I'm not going to let them because it's my show. This is obviously the better ending. I mean, you, the, 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 some kind of reunification with Doc and Shasta. There's, there's no other way to take us out of this story. And I also think that you have a little, you have a thing or three left to say about Miss Shasta Faye, don't you? Well, yeah, but I, the, the scene basically ends with him saying, you know, the jiving with you, my man. <laughs> if you're jiving with me, my man, I say to you. It's, it's so good because also, I kind of feel like Doc is trying to create a situation where he is not a threat by being threatening. <laughs> Well, in a way, you know, it's just a great way to put it, because I was having such a hard time figuring out how I was going to articulate that, which is, as we were even talking about this, it started to occur to me that if Doc didn't kind of come heavy, like, a, or his idea of coming heavy, that I think Crocker just would have wiped him away, like, like again, like a gnat, like, if he had come being a little sheepish, or a little, like, if he'd anything other than the way he does which is his version of coming hard coming in hot being a badass i i think he would have been utterly dismissed or outright killed and the the the, the smack taken from him and so i love that in a way and maybe this isn't quite how you meant it but i almost feel like doc feels like he has to come on as his version of charles bronson just to be like to be like for crocker to view him as well this is how someone should act in this situation you do come hard to a negotiation that i can respect i can't respect him for anything else i can respect that he's coming in hot yeah it's you know it's like some sort of kabuki theater that he they're both doing <laughs> i need to show you this so you can respect the decision and i feel like that's a lot of the scene but also like just again i feel like when you watch this scene, if, if you watch it as I did repeatedly, and you look at the blocking and staging and how it cuts back and forth and when it goes through the two shot, he is doing things just as showy and just as he is using the camera to tell the story. And I think he, he was kind of doing that in his earlier career, but I think he's kind of making you pay a lot of attention to the camera where here he so trusts his instincts that he's telling you everything you need to know by where the camera is. And I think that's amazing. And what's um, interesting is, is it, it, the, the use of camera, or the way the camera moves in this film is full of flourishes, though they may be minor key. Uh, there is so much going on, like you said, you know, you know the, greatest, the third greatest wonder in cinema history is uh, yeah. uh, it, when Shasta uh, comes to the couch in, in Inherent Vice. It's interesting to me, though, and this 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 might just be 
you know, gossip that doesn't really need to go anywhere. But it is interesting to me that this was the last film between PTA and Ellswood, and by all accounts, uh, ended rather con contentiously. And Ellswood has, has, has mentioned this before. And, you know, I, I don't think it's going to hurt anybody to mention that he was briefly going to come onto this show and then finally had to back out saying, I can't, I can't do it. I, I, I can't talk about it. I just won't do it. Uh, the, 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 it's interesting to me to, to try to suss out what exactly happened in PTA communicating what he needed visually and with Ellswood does as an absolutely amazing cinematographer and how that fell apart. And again, maybe, maybe this isn't the place to go, to go too deep into that. But because you mentioned that, I find it so fascinating that on its surface, and even at times I've said, you know, well, you know, sometimes it's a little boring. It's just, you know, pointing a camera at a white wall and we're just, nothing really happens except a slow push in. But that's kind of part of the magic of this film is that is exactly what those sequences need. And it is just as, it is just as much a flourish as a Scorsese-esque uh, tracking shot on Sherman Sherman Way, it's just in a much different way, in, 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 in the film's much more minor key way. I think also it helps connect the film, though obviously they played up the more slapstick stuff. A lot of a lot of that close-up stuff feels of like the 40s and 50s detective yep, fiction exactly. that, that this is riffing on, even if it's not a part of it. Um, while we're kind of, uh, I really want to give a shout out to Joaquin Phoenix's vocal performance because, you know, we just lost Chadwick Boseman and one of the greatest things I've ever seen is his James Brown impression because Jesus Christ, you understand every word he's saying while still doing James Brown's voice because the miracle of that is like, if you listen to James Brown talk, you know, and Murphy wasn't joking. Uh, <laughs> That's good. I was, I was going to bring up the routine, the, the Murphy routine. But like, the way Joaquin Phoenix feels like he's kind of finding the words, like he's waking up, the way he can... I think I've heard of that uh, once or twice before, yeah. It's, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's so, it's so perfect. It's such a brilliant vocal performance. I mean, it's, it's next level. You don't see a lot of stuff like that. Like he's, he's verbalizing that feeling of when you're totally and utterly debasely stoned and time itself begins to expand and contract and, and, and you, you start to speed up and then slow down because that's what time, it's like you're trying to walk a tightrope verbally and keep yourself balanced with the way uh, time keeps shifting around you. And to be able to convey that low key stonage, which is not a word, yeah. but I'm going to say it, uh, purely verbally he's not doing he's not doing the ridiculous uh, uh val kilmer and the doors walk where he's constantly like teetering at like a like a 30 degree angle at any given time it just it's just using that wacky little bit of like a little bit of a uh, little bit of peanut butter in his mouth and just speeding up and slowing down right at the right moment and it is just a mo it's a pure verbal control that conveys so much about the character yeah, yeah no it's uh, like he is he is one of our finest actors and it's you know i wish i wish he won for a better movie but it's thing he got <laughs> i knew it was coming i knew <laughs> i knew a joker comment was coming by the look on your face the anger on your or the, the, the on your face i'm not gonna i the joker whatever who cares who fucking cares about these movies well we do <laughs> I mean, actually we kind of do uh, <laughs> since we we brought him up before we come up again 
uh, in my Under the Silver Lake way. Do you think Vincent Delicato was one of those good cops that had to be shut down? Or do you think that Bigfoot, who is also an actor, let's not, you know, he's an actor. He wants to be an actor. Do you think they, or would you rather not have an answer? Uh, boy, I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't think that, uh, I, I, I don't think that, uh, boy, I think that in Delicato, it's hinted, I mean, obviously there's really no indication in the film whatsoever. You have to reach to the book for any kind of hint as to what might've been going on with him. And again, shout out to uh, increment vice bingo players out there. Uh, in the, in the book, it's, it's made somewhat, it's, it's, it's made somewhat clear somewhat that he is making a little bit too much noise about the things he's seeing behind the scenes in the LAPD. And essentially he's like, they call him, he's like a squeaky wheel. They don't quite make it clear what, what the wheel is squeaking about. Like it's, it's never made entirely clear, you know, is he simply complaining about corruption or is he complaining about not getting a bigger slice of the pie? Uh, I, I honestly just feel that he was uh, wiped out because they were worried about loose lips sinking ships at the LAPD. And I think it was much more about, and maybe I'm being tainted by 2020 right now, but I feel like it was much more of an organization wanting to keep its secrets in-house and no longer uh, looking at Vincent and Delicato as one of their men. Fair, fair. Uh, I was just curious because obviously uh, you've watched this more than most of us. It's funny, I was watching <laughs> last night, and one of the things I noticed is that Roland does a lot of hand acting in this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of bits of bit, like Duval-level business with his hands in this movie. But also, like, when you watch him in the, the episode he was in, he doesn't seem to know how to sit, right? Like, he's, he's trying to stand there and not draw attention, but he can't not kind of fidget a little bit. And there's moments where he's, like, he, he's trying to keep it cool with his voice, but his hands are kind of like, you know, like they're his tell. So, obviously, you know, watching this for a podcast, I was doing sort of a deep dive. But anyway. Hey, this is, this is increment of ice. There's, there's nothing... There's nothing too small. There's no, there's no stone too tiny to, to not peek underneath and see if there's a little something under there. What, what I find, you mentioned stuff. A lot of movies, they talk about the young man, old man films. Like Quentin Tarantino has talked about, like, I don't want to be making old man movies. And I think yes. we all have our different ideas of that. What, what do you think of when I say old man movies? Uh, well, we, you know, when, when you say old man movies, I think of like Billy Wilder, Fedora things like that like just getting to the point where it's like god damn you respect you respect the try you respect that like this is this is what the man was born to do but then you're just like god if you just would have stopped if you just would have stopped you know before we got here yeah like Howard that, Hawks, that, Lobo or you know yeah Hitchcock you know and, family plot. And, I, and i'm sure that you know there's a certain type of director too though where they're just like well it's, it's a gig you do you, you do it till you can't do it anymore and then there's, you know, the more obviously self-conscious directors like, like Quentin who are like, no, I want my tin film filmography and then I'm out. I'm not going to fuck it up. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I think of stuff like that. Old man films, I think of uh, something like Wilder getting up to Fedora. Why, why do you ask? Well, because I was going to say, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, which I like quite a bit, is an old man movie because the regret is so profound. Sure. Whereas when I think about Inherent Vice, which is also about, you know, lovesick, whatever, and wanting to change the past. 
it's a middle-aged man's mood. It's not, it's not overwhelming regret to me. It's sort of the yeah, roads I, that could have been that maybe don't work. Yeah, I think that, that it, I think you're very right, and I think that that's why the book, or excuse me, the book, yeah, I think that's why the book's ending is jettisoned, because I think, hell, you could use that example towards the book. The book is an old man's story. The book is a very angry old man's story, looking back, and I think that's why it has to end with such kind of emotional, quiet emotional desolation that, that it does, which is Doc driving down PCH totally alone, just hoping to God a beautiful blonde and a stingray is going to break down in the fog so he can have someone to talk to. And that the 70s will be, something will be different this time around. But I think that you're right, that the, the, the film is very much a younger man's film. It's not a, not a young man's film, just a younger man's film. In that it does end at least with the, the to quote Sean Connery in uh, cinema's finest, The Rock, the hope that there is hope. And I think that's where Inherent Vice ends. Not, the, not a hopeful ending the, the, in terms of what's going to happen uh, for sure with Shasta and Doc, but the hope that there could be hope. And that to me is a very middle-aged uh, middle-aged idea. The hope that maybe it's not too late just yet. Yeah. But also that maybe the relationship is over and maybe it's not going to work out. But and maybe I, that's okay. Yeah. Like, you know, different roads. Um, yeah, not, not to... I'm not disparaging Hollywood by calling it an old man movie, but it is definitely the profoundness of the melancholy of that ending is, you know, it's not, it's not the same. It's, you really sense that like, I wish things could have been different. I wish, I wish I could change this sin. And it's interesting how Inherent Vice, uh, the film minimizes the presence of the Mansons to basically, yeah. you know, the cops mentioning it and, and Shasta in her big scene, but, the way she's mentioning it, like, you know, in the book, uh, you know, Doc wants uh, Penny to get a wig for sex play to look like one of the Manson girls. And in the movie, it doesn't come out of the same place. No. It's, it's like, it's Manson girls as, as someone being so controlled and it ties into, you know, her feelings about Doc at that moment is, do you need me to be your slave? And that's what that whole scene is about. Like, are you going to punish me? And I think, well, I think to the, 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 like you said, there's that feeling in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, I wish I could undo this sin. Like, I wish I could unring this bell. I wish I could make the past different and save it from itself. And I think that that's one of the things that, I think it's one of the reasons why the Manson family is so scaled back out of an inherent, or out of, yeah, out of inherent vice, aside from being able to use it as a metaphor for, as, as Shasta says, what kind of girl do you need, Doc? Is, it's almost, it's too heavy. It's too heavy for this story. The melancholy, though the weird cultural melancholy that always reverberates in those murders, not to say that they're not tragic, it's just, we've had so many, that, and yet, that one just kind of warbles like an out-of-tune guitar string, that whole uh, stretch of uh, Manson family-related murders. To include those in the film in any kind of real concrete way, it, it would make Inherent Vice an, an, an old man movie, as you say. It would, because the, the sense of despair and sadness and, irre and irrevocability and utter lack of hope would just be too strong and suffocating so that an ending like the ending that we do get in this movie, it would feel, I think it would, just, it would be so false. It wouldn't I, I, work. 
I wonder if I, I'm sure that there are a number of people who watch this when when uh, when uh, Bigfoot says, uh, you know, no, you know, CeeLo Drive had no idea what he was talking about because it it doesn't it doesn't stop to tell you. Yeah, which you know I'd never thought of that. You know, everyone made so much hay out of uh, millennial viewers and younger viewers watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and having no idea who the fuck Charles Manson is, which still blows my mind that that. that I mean, the, we, there are people walking around that don't know that. And also the people who went and saw that film and somehow watched that context-free, what that must be like. But yeah, I never, I never thought of that in terms of the fact that there are so many gags and comments in an Inherent Vice uh, in a much more peripheral, peripheral jokey way about a Manson girl or Charles Manson or CLO Drive and how so many people probably don't rec- recognize what that, uh, what that reference is to, is to and why Bigfoot is lamenting it. Yeah, but yeah, to me, Shasta is Shasta kind of like that that girl that you're in love with until you're not. <laughs> She's kind of that girl that like, you know, you you had that night where the sex was incredible and maybe a little bit wrong. I don't know, like, and so like when the relationship's over. Sometimes you think about it and you feel bad about thinking about it, but you're always going to think about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that is word, almost word for word. That is what PT, PTA has said about it. He's like, you know, you know, he, he, I can't remember the interview, which outfit it was with. But he's like, you know, haven't we all had that, you know, that, 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 that ex old that you know is wrong for you and that you shouldn't be thinking about, but there you are going, is she thinking about me? Who's she with right now? Who's she fucking? Who's she talking to? Uh, should I even be thinking about this? Should I be thinking about her? I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't. And yet there you are ready to, to ask how high when she shows up at your door with a mystery and asking you to jump. Uh, part of me feels like watching it again, like it starts with Shasta asking him to investigate her sex life. And yeah. so the whole movie is him basically being exposed to all these facets of her that he may not be able to deal with. And I, I feel like as, you know, she is a mystery, but not, not in a bad writerly way where there's nothing there. It's that he doesn't know her. And maybe part of what she was doing by putting him on this was, was hipping him to that. Like, here's what you need to know. This is, this is you know, you know, you have to rescue your Broomhilda, but you know, the rescuing is from ignoring the fact that, uh, you know, I went through these phases that maybe you don't understand or will never understand, but maybe I needed to sleep with three guys on a boat just to do it. Now I've done it. Here we are. Can you love me? It's and maybe that, you can. And that, that is so much what that, what that scene, what that third best wonder in cinema history has become to me is is her saying to him exactly that which is look this is who it is this is who i am this this is what it is like is this going to rip you to pieces are you going to be cool like this is but you got to know that it's not a manson i'm not a manson girl like i'm not going to be that for you i can't be that for you and this these are the things i've done these are kind of things that i like to do and it was it was something i did together yeah <laughs> it's just, I mean, and and you got to ask yourself are you going to look at me and say you know well you know in my eye you're always too young so i think it's a happy ending but it's a sad happy. 
oh, it's definitely sad happy. Like it's not happy. We're we're not in the pantheon of happy happy here. This is this is this is not uh, this is not the coke kid closing out punch drunk love. We are not happy happy here. But we're I sad happy. I, I don't I, I I don't feel like it's a profound melancholia. It's 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 a happy melancholy. Yeah, again, it's this happy sad thing. It's this it's this. I, if it doesn't work out, everything will be okay. But maybe we're back together again. Who knows? Exactly. It's exactly that. I think it's it's that feeling of well, here we are again. Here we are again, back together, like we always do. Like the, you get the feeling this is a couple that breaks up and is going to be coming back together and maybe breaking up and coming back. Like the, there are those sequel, people. People to modern romance, as it were. <laughs> well, aren't there those people in our lives where it's like you just can't let go? They show up, and you're like, son of a do this again I, I, God damn it. and i think shasta is definitely his and I, but i also i do think that he does love her but i think that there is also as you said i think there's that feeling as, as they're driving into the fog i think they are both doing what doc in the book does hoping things are going to be different this time but i also think that there's a peace with the fact that if it doesn't then that's okay too like they can just ride out into the fog he can drop her off in a, a hancock park where she's shacking up now and that'll be that and it'll be okay this time that it'll be okay that they part ways because for the first time they've actually or not they doc for the first time doc has seen her clearly because i think she's seen him clearly all along but now for the first time she's out of the fog for him and he has that clear light coming through his uh his rear view and he can kind of see things uh as i said at the beginning of this episode this whole this whole sequence has been about pulling the scales from our our leads eyes to see the world he's living in uh, Shasta has done that for him and you know maybe now he's okay if he just has to drop her off he's okay with it just don't mean they're back together yeah, yeah. Man, we're getting, all, we're getting yeah. heavy tonight you and I we're getting it's, all deep. it's funny um, because we're in quarantine um, I have had all of my major exes get in contact with me at some point or another <laughs> I don't know. Oh, what a year this is. What a year. You know, I'm single, so I think part of it is because I'm single that they're checking it on me, but uh, I don't know if that's happening to you. And it's like, it actually made me feel pretty good because it's like, there's still love there with all of them of like, I want to know that you're doing well. Most of the people that hit me up, I don't want to talk to. Maybe I'm not, I'm not doc yet. I'm not, I, <laughs> but no, it, it is, it is interesting how, um, it, I, I know, I know what you mean though, that feeling of, oh, well, she is still thinking of me. Well, it's, I still exist. Like, I haven't stopped existing for this person. Because we also know that there's people that, you know, when they're gone, they're gone. They just, they don't exist for you anymore. And there's that idea that like, oh, I'm, I'm still a character in that, in that person's movie. Like, I still exist somewhere. There's a flashback with me hanging out and we're having a good time. Yeah. And there's something, there is something kind of comforting about that. Even if it does take a global viral pandemic to, uh, to spur it on. Or people. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Damon, this has been fun. Yeah, yeah. I've okay. liked this. This was good. We, 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 we came to some conclusions tonight. I think, uh, I think we did a good job tonight. How do you feel? I feel pretty good. I mean, uh, I think more people need to watch Under the Silver Lake, but, uh, you know. I, I thoroughly agree. And you know what? You, you were doing so much for me for this show. So I, I did rewatch Under the Silver Lake last night uh, a- just, just because I wanted to make sure I was at my fighting weight. Uh, when I came into this, and it's a, it, it's it's a remarkable, remarkable film. You know, when I, like I said, the first time I watched it, I gave it like a strong B, 
I, I was getting a little annoyed at how clever, just how clever it was in that first hour. But then that gut punch of a second hour, which in which you realize that something entirely different, an entirely different tale was being told and suffused with such sadness, uh, even if the character himself is not a pitiable man, which he, he just is not, there is just such a, a kind of sorrow and empathy that you didn't really know was there, but you know, it's not, it's not pour, sweating out of the film's pores the way it would like a Jonathan Dammy film, but it is there along with it's just pure cinematic brilliance. And I know this is a podcast about inherent vice and I'm just going to go on and on about how great under the silver lake is, but it is a, it, you know what? It, it's as if, it's as if Brian De Palma decided to indeed show up and make his most heartfelt portrait of a shithead as is possible and i i don't know how else to describe it than that but it is it is a wonderful film and i i would definitely give it a hard a now at this point like it's it's up there for me i don't know if it's going to ever be my late night movie um, I, i'm happy because I, I i i've seen that kim morgan has embraced it as kind of like a go-to insomniac film and mm -hmm. edgar wright has said some positive things about it uh, and it's i think i think it's starting to find its fan base but I mean, like I love so much about it. I mean, like that that great scene with uh, Andrew Garfield and, and Topher Grace, where they you know operate the drone <laughs> camera, and it basically explicates what could possibly be the thesis of the movie, which you know when they when they see the 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 model in her yeah. living room and they're spying on her, and then she starts crying. They feel bad about it, but yeah, but it's right. great. But it's also couched in a scene that says, or maybe these guys are just shitheads. Maybe they're just shitheads. Also, or maybe both. Just one of the best all-around like music presentations between score and soundtrack of the past. Oh. So good. And the that, music, so good. That disaster piece score breaks my heart. And to to tie it back to to inherent vice, the, the films do share a pop song, uh, "Never My Love" by the Association, which yes. brilliantly opens under the Silver Lake. And if uh, anyone with super sharp ears out there is uh, listening the next time they watch uh, Inherent Vice, you'll know, you'll hear that uh, Doc is keeping it on KHJ when uh, Clancy Sherlock shows up and yeah. uh, Never My Love is playing very quietly in the background as he's uh, getting high on the laughing gas. It's, I it's cranked a, it up last night so I could hear that. And again, again, I'm probably giving him too much credit. I'm bribing too much of a, a Sam from Under the Silver Lake, but you can't entirely dismiss the possibility that David Robert Mitchell took that song specifically because it was in another California sort of kind of neo-noir about sort of kind of the same thing and popped it in and used it as his pitch perfect opening song. Just so, like, I'm sorry, like, if you want, by the time he assaults those kids, if you weren't into the movie, like, you can probably turn it off. That's the greatest out of context line that's probably ever been spoken on this show. If you aren't, by the time he's beating those kids, if you aren't in love with this movie, man, you're no friend of mine. Get out of here. Like, <laughs> such a pitch. Per like, yeah, take that out. Like, that should be the lead in for the whole episode. Um, oh, God. And I must say, I must say, hey, no one's got anything to do. Everyone has a ton of free time right now. We're all bored out of our goddamn minds looking for something to keep uh, our synapses firing. If you're looking for something to do this weekend, you could do far worse than an Under the Silver Lake Inherent Vice double feature. I think you got to start off with Under the Silver Lake. 
And then I think you got to ease into inherent vice. And I think inherent vice is a little shorter. You always got to do the, sh the, the shorter film second and give yourself an under the silver lake inherent vice that will feature. It'll be good for what ails you. I, I think, anyway, I think. And, plus, if you, and if you live in LA, if you live in Los Angeles and you're so goddamn depressed, like I am that you cannot go anywhere anymore. You get to see a lot of your favorite haunts in the. It's like, it's, it's kind of amazing. Shop I saw the last bookstore. It makes me really sad watching that movie. Well, because like I've I've been in LA for like a little over fifteen years now, and you know there's there's a lot of movies you watch later in like True Romance where you go like oh my god that's the Vista oh my god you know that's Safari and I don't know when you moved here but you know some about thirteen moved. years ago yeah, but like you have that moment when you watch true romance like a couple years after you moved here and you go like, oh fuck, I know where everything is. Yeah. The first time I saw Under the Silver Lake, I was like, I know everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's like a comfort blanket now like, because we can't go to any of these places. There's something uh, very sadly nostalgic about the film now. Yeah. Like, uh, and it's funny too, like, yeah, like, because when you listen to audio commentaries, uh, often, like, it'll be like, yeah, we shot that on Sepulveda, you know, and, oh, wait, now, now we're on Coenga. Wait, now, yeah. now we move to Gower. We're at the Gower studio. We're shooting at Gower. Uh, now we're at the Paramount lot, you know, but, like, watching this, definitely, like, if you're from L.A., it kind of tickles those, like, I know exactly where I, everything is. The reassuring also, feeling. Jimmy Simpson playing sentient cocaine, brilliant touch. <laughs> sentient <Really>? cocaine <laughs> especially because everybody knows a jimmy simpson sentient cocaine person in their life or is that person but everyone has that person in, in los angeles you have you have that 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 jimmy simpson character in your life which is it's why funny. he's so perfect if if i were ever to do a podcast like this i would want it to be for something like under the silver i'd want it to be for under the silver like or barring that knockoff but uh, <laughs> going minute oh, by minute through knockoff, like exploding how blue jeans. Come on, one of the greatest films of all time, and I'm not lying. I'm not. I'm not saying that as hyperbole. I love knockoff. John Claude Van Damme's knockoffs, directed by Troy Hark, recommended higher than most things. But anyway, I feel like if I were to do like a minute or scene deconstruction of Under the Silver Lake, I would have to then be ported in the movie like Mike TV or something, because. <laughs> Because that's like, like, it is the antithesis of what Under the Silver Lake is about. Like, studying the minutia, <laughs> trying to find the hidden details. Oh, God. Character, even the character in that film says, you, don't, you can't waste your time on that shit. The balloon girl, you, you can't waste your time on this, Tamer. At the same yeah, time. Here, and yet here we are. Here we are, you and I, doing exactly that for a slightly, uh, for a slightly different film. At the same film. time, every time I watch the movie, I'm like, I think the balloon girl, you know, the one he dances with. Yeah. In the, I think she's the owl's kiss. Yeah, you wonder that. That's my theory. They move the same way. They really do. Um, and I, yeah, and I don't know if that the actress is being kept secret because she's fully naked or if it's a body double or if it's not meant to be any sort of, and it doesn't matter. That's, <laughs> That's the point, David, is it doesn't matter whatsoever. <laughs> it's just, but also that scene is so great because she shows up and like, I'm going to kill you. And then he's like, got a gun. She's like, nope. <laughs> Come on. Well, well, hell, Damon, do you just want to do an episode about the, under the silver lake? You know, like okay. So it starts with this song. <laughs> 
and the girl in the Jim Morrison t-shirt, she's wiping the, the, the graffiti off of the front window. And as we pan over, we see a guy wearing a shirt, wearing symbols that spells out, beware the dog killer. <laughs> oh, okay, gang. So we're not actually going to do this. Like, it must be said, I wore a beware the dog killer shirt for you Travis. Did. You did. That you I did. purposely bought to wear while doing the show. Unfortunately. A purely uh, audio show. Yeah, well, <laughs> it would have been funny in person. <laughs> yeah, which we can't, which we also can't do. Which it was, uh, thank you, thank you, 2020. Never my love. No. <laughs> oh, mm. boy. That song better be playing right now when this episode airs. Mm. On that note, Damon, holy shit. This is exactly what I wanted this episode to be. And you took me and you took everybody else on a journey. And I could not be more thankful to you. I have been so excited to do this, to talk about Inherent Vice with you, to talk about Under the Silver Lake with you, which I knew was going to happen. And I'm very glad that it happened. And I do, uh, exhausting though it may be to do a show like this, I genuinely, I would pay top goddamn dollar for an Under the Silver Lake uh, uh, scene by scene, at least, podcast with you. And you know what? Get Jimmy Simpson to be your co-host in character, in character the whole time, motor mouthing his way with you. I, I I would pay any amount to hear that. Yes. I, I would actually probably chip in some coins for that as well. <laughs> you got to do it. And I, hey, what's yeah, your busy? Get like Nobody's Patrick Fischler to show up, talk about his, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know about you. I know we're wrapping up, but like I had that semiotics class in college where it's yeah. like they show you, like, look at this. Now, isn't that a vagina? Isn't that a <laughs> penis? And you have that moment the first time in your life where you look at advertising and you go like oh yeah oh oh that's what they're doing as common as hamburgers and tits as the movie says oh uh, oh the train going in the thing actually represents (laughs) huh huh so what's with that sight gag and the naked gun that i get it i get it like how could i not like fall in love with a movie that that's about being radicalized by semi you know? <laughs> like i said the first hour and I, I i much more appreciate it now than i did then it really is semiotics the motion picture it's what it is and in the most entertaining way possible and you know what uh uh was it, it was a24 right a24 yeah. a24 boy you guys did that movie dirty did it dirty yeah. come on come on a bare bones blu-ray and amazon prime streaming come on it's funny so, i was on it Speaking of, like, I was on a plane ride once and I was seated next to Todd Haynes. And this was before I'm Not There came out. Uh-huh. And he had signs and meaning and a Bob Dylan book on his, on his, you know, airplane trip. And I was like, oh, no. That, it couldn't be more perfect. Couldn't be perfect. <laughs> okay. With that. I know you got to go because you've got to start writing for this uh, Under the Silver Lake podcast. And you got to get that, get that thing going. You got to get the pitch package ready. I'll help you out. Uh, but before you go, I do have to say again, thank you so, so much. And uh, before, uh, let everyone know where they can follow you so they can read those, those, those small character gems that you toss off that make me so The bon mot. Yeah, the bon mot. The, the little pop cultural bromides uh, that you make now and again. It's at Hawks. That's spelled H. O-U-X. So, yeah, you can find me on Twitter there. And uh, if you ever wanted to read, like, the DVD journal, I wrote a bunch of stuff there back in the day. And, I, I, you know, my stuff's still online from place to place. And every once in a 
profile, I'll write about like how terrible I thought the Rise of Skywalker was on my blog, but still link it on my my Twitter. You can find shit there. <laughs> That's where you'll find them. And again, thank you so much, man, for coming on. This was an absolute joy, a joy for me. And I gotta say thanks to everyone for listening, and to please join me next time, where myself and a very special guest are gonna meet the family Fang. Well, gee, boys, you talked about as long as the movie itself. I mean, I like Inherent Vice as much as the next disembodied narrator who may or may not be a figment of a podcast host imagination. But come on, leave some for the rest of us. But now that Doc's deal with the Fang is mostly done, what comes next? What's left? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.